0: Christ Community Church. Uh, Welcome to what I hope to be our last uh, virtual online service as next week we will again be opening up our campus for public services. So starting Sunday, June 14th, we'll be able to gather again after a little over three months. Before I begin this morning, let me just say that I, like many of you, have been watching the events unfold in the news for the last 10 or so days. And I am just as grieved, frustrated, angry at what I see happening in our country. I'm not foolish enough to believe that in in any particular sermon I might give, there's going to be a solution to what's going on. So I'm I'm not going to be doing that this morning. What's going on in our situation, our country requires nuance and a, a complexity as complex as the redemptive message of Jesus Christ in some ways. No simple solutions for what's going on. Not a simple slogan, not a simple meme, not a simple sound bite is gonna get us out of this. What I am convinced of, and I know what you are all convinced of as well, that now more than ever, what the world needs are ambassadors of Christ, believers, members of churches, gripped with the message of reconciliation that Christ can save the world. I'm also so happy to know that as I watch the television, I know that there are gospel-centered, Jesus-proclaiming churches right in the epicenter of where a lot of this has taken place. I have friends at Cornerstone in Santa Monica, friends at Epiphany in Crenshaw, and they are moving into their communities with the hope of Jesus Christ, the same hope that we share. Now... I, wasn't, I kind of thought maybe I should pivot and do maybe a short series on gospel and race. I'm not going to do that simply because I'm just not ready to do that. I want to give more thought about it and, and dig more into the Scriptures. But also because I realized that the series that we're about to start on, the series we're going to go on this summer, is just as important as anything else we could be thinking about. The series, One Act of Righteousness, is going to be looking at the saving events of Jesus Christ and what that means for us, not theologically, uh, although that'll be part of it, but practically speaking, situationally speaking, for the existential crisis that we're facing. And so there was really no need to pivot because what we need now more than ever is to be so full of the knowledge of Jesus' saving work that we are ready to bring that into our culture. So hopefully, uh, maybe we'll do a Sunday school class on gospel and race. Maybe I'll do a one or two message series. I'm right now working on an article, whether or not it makes it to Gospel Coalition. If it does, I'll send you all the link. Uh, Maybe it'll just be a kind of a couple pages of reflection on thinking biblically about this crisis that I send out to our church. Maybe it will be the outliner of one or two sermon series. And the case is, uh, we are thinking about it, and there is hope in the gospel. And so with that, I want to begin this morning with, I want to pray and then start our series entitled One Act of Righteousness. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you and we see what's going on. And and there's one sense we can be very disheartened, one sense we can be discouraged, but in one sense your word tells us that this is the reality, this is the physical manifestation of the spiritual reality of a world broken and out of fellowship with you. So it's not surprising, Lord. We pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the midst of those situations, who are in local churches living in those neighborhoods, that you would sustain them and give them grace to be ambassadors of righteousness in a very difficult time. For us here in South Orange County, Lord, we pray that we would learn to support them, come alongside them, and think thoughtfully that we might represent you well in our areas of influence. Bless the teaching of your word right now, I pray, in your son's name. Amen. Yaroslav Pelikan, the the famous um, scholar, scholar, scholar from Yale University, famously opened his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, by writing this, "'Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries.'" Jesus himself understood and taught that God's plan of redemption centered in on him. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus reminded the disciples that all of Scripture was pointing towards him. Luke 24 records, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. In John chapter 5, Jesus confronted the religious leaders for not identifying Him as the goal of God's plan of redemption. In John 5, 39, it says this, Jesus says to the rabbis, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. In John chapter 14 and John chapter 17, Jesus proclaimed that He was the only way to life with God. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John seventeen three, he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The New Testament apostles and the authors believe that Jesus was the climax of humanity, history, and eternity. Hebrews begins by underscoring the superiority and finality of God's self-disclosure in His Son. Hebrews 1 writes this, verses 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. In Ephesians, Paul explains that in Christ, God had made known his eternal will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 says this, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he sent forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To the Colossians, Paul described Christ in terms of his cosmic preeminence. Colossians 1:16, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's not hard to imagine why Jesus is the central figure of humanity. In fact, if you understand Genesis 1 and 2 Corinthians 4, you realize that you can only understand humanity in the light of Jesus Christ himself. Without Jesus, you don't have all the variables to understand what humanity is supposed to be. Genesis 1, it says this, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, in Genesis 1, it says that humanity was created to be in the image of God, but 2 Corinthians 4 says that Jesus Christ Himself is the image of God. Friends, these are high and lofty statements, aren't they? And as you look at At Western society, at our art, at our our culture, our literature, even our architecture and government, you can see the long shadow that Jesus Christ has cast. But the further we move into the 21st century, it doesn't seem like that's the case, does it? Even in our churches, Jesus is portrayed more like a therapist to comfort and guide than he is a first responder to protect and rescue. Now, to be clear, Jesus does both. Jesus does comfort and guide as well as protect and rescue. But just because Jesus is all those things, it doesn't follow from that that there isn't a priority of his purposes. It's very important to realize. Though he may do all those things and comfort us and all that and and give us help, just he does all those things, it doesn't mean that there isn't a priority to the things he's about. And if you miss his priorities, if you miss the priorities of Christ, it's likely that you'll misunderstand him entirely. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's pretend that you are on a a cruise ship, a luxury liner named the love boat. I, I know I'm already dating myself, but let's say you're on the love boat, right? What is the priority of the captain? priority of the captain is make sure that that all the passengers are enjoying themselves, they're having a good time, that their cabin is to their expectations, that they're feasting in the dining hall, they have beautiful views of the ocean, that they're enjoying the entertainment, that it's fun and it's quality, right? The captain oversees and makes sure that that's all happening nicely. Now, let me change that entire scenario by changing just one word. The luxury liner you are on is not the love boat, It's the Titanic. Now, what is the priority of the captain? That captain doesn't care if your cabin meets your expectations, does he? That captain's not concerned about whether or not you think the view is beautiful. He could care less about whether or not you enjoyed the food or you enjoy the entertainment. As a matter of fact, it would be positively immoral for that captain in that situation to be caring about any of those things to the neglect of the one primary responsibility, the one primary uh, priority he has to you, that's your survival, that you make it off this sinking ship, this sinking luxury liner, this Titanic, that you get off of that into a lifeboat. And if you don't understand the captain's priority, you will not, your experience of the captain, your interactions with that captain will not be what you expect. In other words, your experience and expectations of the captain are in direct proportion to what you understand his priority to be, isn't it? And culturally, friends, wouldn't you agree that for the most part, we all seem to think that Captain Jesus is the captain of the luxury liner, the love boat that we are all a part of, rather than Captain Jesus being on this luxury liner, the Titanic, that is sinking in the freezing Atlantic. And friends, if if any of the events of the last 10 days or the last three months have taught us if, if they have abused us or disabused us of, of any false notion, is that we in life is this luxury liner called the love boat. We are realizing in a very visceral, real way that life is not the love boat. It's the Titanic. And this ship is sinking fast. Now, let's be clear. It is not now called the Titanic because what's happened in the last 10 days or what's happened in the last three months. No, 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 no. Those are merely the physical manifestations of the spiritual reality that's always been going on, and that is this ship is sinking. It's the Titanic, and it's never been the love boat. No pun intended, but that ship has sailed in Genesis 3, and we have been on the Titanic. But let me get back to my question. Let me get back to the question. So, why is it, as we move further and further into the 21st century, we don't seem to sense the shadow over Christ so predominantly as we have for the prior 20 centuries? More to the point, why is that the case also in the modern evangelical church? Now, there are many reasons for it, but one important reason, and this is partly why we're doing this series, one important reason is because by and large, we have a very thin one-dimensional, flat view of Christ. We, we, we have, in effect, a cardboard Christ. And this is true of people not just inside the church, but this is also true of people outside the church, the way they think about Christ. So for some, Jesus is just fire insurance from an apparently angry God. For others, Jesus is a, a, a psychological a security blanket to make you feel like everything's going to be okay. Okay. For yet others, Jesus is a moral example, so we know how everyone's supposed to behave. And yet for still others, Jesus is a social revolutionary that's leading radical change. How did that happen? That, That so many people have such a sense of, well, this is what Jesus is about. And while there are elements of those things that are certainly true, that's far from the full perspective. It's probably a lot that has to do with what Francis Schaeffer says that we live in a Christ haunted culture. And what Schaeffer meant by that is that you simply cannot get away from Jesus. Not not just his name in our society. That's not what I mean. That's not what Schaefer meant. But more significantly, his values, his teachings, his words, his deeds, his stories, the institutions or people or ideals he left behind, whether explicitly or implicitly. You cannot get away from him. You live in a Christ-haunted culture, whether you know it or not. And as a result of that, we're so familiar with these things, we're so familiar with him, that we are so unfamiliar with them entirely. We're so used to these things, we don't realize how grounded they are in the person and character and the work of Jesus himself. And now the tables have turned. It is no longer that, that, that we let Jesus dictate to us based on what he said and what he's done and what this ancient book tells us about him. Rather, we dictate to him what we want him to be based upon our perceived needs. And so like Marilyn Manson says or Depeche Mode, we have our own personal Jesus. And so this summer, We want to flesh out Jesus' saving work so that we have more than a flat, one-dimensional understanding of Jesus. We want to know the work of Christ, the saving work of Jesus, fully. Why? Because our greatest need, and this is true if you're a Christian and you already believe that Jesus is the the center of history, humanity, and the climax of God's redemptive purposes. Or if you're not a Christian and you're not sure what you think about Jesus, his church, or, or currently anything you might know about him. Our greatest need is to have a Savior that is not the product of our needs. Friends, that, that, is one of the most, that, that is one of the most greatest needs of our time, to have a Savior who's not a product of our needs. W.H. Auden, he was a, a, a British poet. Later in his life, he came back to his faith in Jesus Christ. He grew up in an Anglican church in England, but uh, went away from that for many years of his life. Later in life, he came back to his faith. And many of his you know, artistic friends were very, very cynical, very curious about why he would go back to such an antiquated religious system. Notice what Auden said. I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. Because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. If we're honest, friends, Jesus is not the Savior any of us would want. But as we'll learn this summer, he is the Savior that every one of us need. And as we go through these nine weeks looking at the saving events of Jesus that make up his life, we're going to find that he answers the most essential questions even now, especially now, that are so important to our society. Number one, how can something that happened 2,000 years ago make any difference in my life today? Friends, that's a legitimate question. Maybe you've heard people ask that. Maybe you've asked that yourself. Well, the life, the work of Christ answers that question. Another question that this study is going to answer is, how can Jesus represent me? I mean, I can understand how he might represent a a middle-aged Jewish Middle Eastern man, but how does he represent a half-Asian, American, Indian, white guy like me? How does he represent a black man? How does he represent a white man? How does Jesus represent me? That's going to be answered as we study his saving work. How can I be forgiven? Maybe you didn't grow up in a church, and you're not even thinking about the problem in those terms. But I bet you you're thinking about things like, well, how do I be free? How, how can I be free of the, the, the shackles that bind me, the oppression that surrounds me? How can I be free? That's the same question that, that, that traditionally we're asking when we ask. How can I be forgiven? How can I be free? How can I change? How can I live the life I know it should be, but so often I can't seem to do it? How can I be different? How can I change? How can you be sure that Jesus is the answer, and even if He is the answer, how can you be sure He has the power to deliver on what He promises? How can there be true peace and reconciliation in the world? How can I know that all the the wrongs will be made right, that justice and love will win out? How can we be sure that this world will be remade and renewed? How can we be sure that there's hope for this world? Friends, I hope it's really clear. These aren't questions that just Christians ask. These are questions that everyone asks and and whether the question is asked with with an understandable skepticism or with hopeful faith, I hope that my goal in these nine weeks as we study through the saving acts of Jesus is we realize that he is and what he has done is the answer for these most essential questions. Now, how are we going to do that? Because this that's just huge. How are we going to even begin to tackle that? And for that, I want you to turn over to the book of Romans in the New Testament, right after Acts and the Gospels, Romans chapter 5 and verse 18, where Paul writes this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see here, Paul is explaining how we got into this mess. What mess, you ask? Just open up any news app. Just turn on the television. Just open a newspaper. Just what mess? That mess. But more importantly, what Paul's talking about in Romans 5.18 is how humanity gets out of that mess. The one trespass that led to condemnation for all men and women. What Paul's referring to there is what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 when all of humanity raised its fists of rebellion and turned our backs on God. The one act of righteousness referred to there is the work of Christ, which is the essence of the gospel message that redeems all of us. So, what is that gospel message? Now, if you are a a good student of the Bible, you you know where to go. You're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1 because Paul literally spells it out. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So people say, the gospel message, there it is, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's your answer, you are correct. That is the correct answer, but it's not the complete answer. What do I mean by that? What what do I mean by that? In other places of the New Testament, and as we'll see throughout the series, even in the Old Testament... The writers describe other aspects and events of the Messiah's life, which we know from the New Testament is Jesus. They describe aspects and events of the, of Jesus' life that lead to this justification that Paul is talking about. This, this justification being made right with God and this new life. So let me give you a sample. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 teaches us that Christ's intercession saves us. Hebrews 7:25. Consequently, he is able, I love this phrase, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 teaches us that Christ's second coming saves us. Hebrews 9, 28 says this, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Wow. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us that Jesus' sinless life saves us. Listen to Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. My point is this, friends, when Paul says one act of righteousness in Romans 5.18, that is theological shorthand for a whole array of, of, of actions and events in Jesus' life that make up this, what, this, this gospel work. That's shorthand for so much more that make up the work of Christ in the life of Christ. So, for his death and resurrection to even be possible, he had to live a sinless life. But in order for him to have lived a sinless life, he had to be born, he had to be incarnated. So, we already have right there two uh, necessary pre requisites. Uh, His incarnation and sinless life so that His death and resurrection could actually be possible and efficacious, powerful for you and me. And as we read the rest of the New Testament and step back and look at the Bible, we realize that there are five other events that are necessary results of Jesus' victory over death and sin that all together make up the work of Christ that Paul is referring to in Romans 5.18 as this one act of righteousness all these nine events packed in to that little short phrase. In each week of our series that we're going to be looking at this summer, we're going to be looking at one of these events and how th- that event answers many of the questions that we most desperately need answered in our culture, in our society, in our time. How can I change? Is there hope for reconciliation between men and women and men and men? Is there hope for reconciliation between God and men? How can I be free? How can we know that this world will be made new? How can we know that there is hope that we can live and base our lives upon? All these questions will be answered. And all those answers are found in His one act of righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, uh, just I am excited to jump into this series Well, so often as we read Scripture, we read over phrases and we read over sections, and they're so packed with significance and meaning for our lives, and yet we've just run right past them. Thank you for the opportunity to stop and gather and reflect on the depth of your Word, but the simplicity of it. Father, may we gather with joyful hearts as we as a local church hear from your word again together physically. What a joy, what a delight. Lord, we ask that you continue to show your mercy upon this country. Not just because of the pestilence of COVID-19, because of the civil unrest, the, the brokenness, the hatred, the hurt, the anger. And Father, we know that this, for this reason you sent your son for this one act of righteousness so that there would be true health, true peace, true justice. And until that king sits on the throne, Lord, we, we strive to be ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. We thank you for this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ's community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.